Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Earlier this month, Getty Images, one of the world's prominent suppliers of editorial photography, stock images, and other forms of media, announced that it had commenced legal proceedings in the High Court of Justice in London against Stability AI, a British startup firm that says it builds AI solutions using, quote, collective intelligence, claiming Stability AI infringed on Getty's intellectual property rights by including content owned or represented by Getty in its training data. Getty says Stability AI unlawfully copied and processed millions of images protected by copyright and the associated metadata owned or represented by Getty without a license, which the company says is to the detriment of the content's creators. The question at the heart of Getty's assertion that generative AI tools like Stable Diffusion or OpenAI's Dolly 2 are in fact exploiting the creators of the images their models are trained on could have significant implications for the field. Earlier this month, I attended a symposium on existing law and extended reality hosted at Stanford Law School. There, I met today's guest, who brings a unique perspective to questions related to AI and ownership as a former Amazon software engineer, a PhD student in computer science at McGill University, and as a Northern Cheyenne man intent on preserving the language and culture of Native people. I am Michael Runningwolf. I am Northern Cheyenne and Lakota and the founder of Indigenous and AI, a nonprofit focused on getting more Indigenous people into machine learning. And I am also a PhD student in computer science focused on natural language processing at McGill University. Can you tell me just a little bit about the work you're doing training Lakota youth? I read a little bit about that and, and find it fascinating and would love to hear more. Yeah, uh, maybe we start at the beginning. So I began this AI journey when I was working in industry, uh, when I was at Amazon, and I really wanted to enable these technologies for indigenous peoples. And as part of that, I was searching for colleagues and peers or even just research analogous to my interests, you know, specifically voice AI for um, indigenous peoples. And I literally couldn't find anyone. And so working with the organizers of NeurIPS, which is a large AI conference, I created an affinity group that's associated with NeurIPS, um, fiscally sponsored uh, as a nonprofit. And as part of that, I became to realize how bad the statistics are. We There's a survey by Talby, the CRA survey, and it checks like how many computer scientists and data scientists are there in North America. They survey, you know, uh, universities in the United States and Mexico and um, Canada, I believe. And it's the largest survey in North America uh, on the subject. And the stats are really bad. Like we, there's, we only produce one or two PhD students per year, if we're lucky. And it's actually a recent phenomenon that we've only been, so that may actually only be like, six or seven PhD students with computer science or related fields in all of North America that are indigenous uh, and the First Nations, you know, indigenous of Mexico and um, United Native American from the United States. And 
I start to think, how do I address this? Like, how do we as a community address this? So I had friends in ML space and we got to thinking, and one of my friends, his name is Mason Grimshaw, uh, MIT graduate, super genius, had this idea. Why don't we teach Lakota youth artificial intelligence and data science so that they can go on and join the career in, um, uh, in AI? And that's where it began. It was an idea. It happened on a Tuesday, <laughs> I guess. He told me his idea, and he was very super. It was one of those conversations where he just, it was a wild idea. He thought it was a wild idea, and he, he didn't think it was feasible. Like, this is something we might do in 10 years. And I said, I have to have, be having a phone call tomorrow with uh, one of my partners' uh, foundation at the McGovern Foundation. And I did, do you mind if I mention this in... And he says, sure. I said, okay. Uh, so I talked to McGovern Foundation and they were asking, they just wanted to, it was like a, a conversation around, uh, they had funded my AI work previously and we were talking about, you know, other partnership opportunities we can work with together, collaborate on. And I mentioned this idea and they loved it. They said, give us a pitch by Monday and we'll see where we go from there. And so that, that week and that how like half week, like over four days, we put it together and and that kind of came together, surprisingly. Like, um, it, it was very expensive. Um, we, we anticipated the cost to be very high, and we were surprised that they were willing to um, foot the bill. Can you tell me something about the students? What's it look like? What's the program look like for them? The long-term objective of the Lakota AI Code Camp is to produce more researchers, you know, produce more math graduate students and more PhD students. Um, uh, and it has to start at high school. Uh, there's just this huge gap between high school and undergraduate. And so the students we are targeting are high schoolers, uh, high school age in the United States between 13 and 18 years old. And they come from South Dakota. We focus in on Lakota, my father's tribe. Uh, and so there's many different types of Lakota, different languages, different cultures that made up the former Lakota nation, and they make up north of South Dakota and Nebraska and Wyoming. Uh, but the terrain originally before colonization was from uh, Alberta, Canada, all the way down to Oklahoma. Between the Rockies and the Missouri, they had this large nation state uh, that was Lakota, the Lakota nation. So when I uh, look up you know, your name and I look at, at sort of some of the concepts and ideas that are associated with uh, the various kind of you know, media appearances and uh, interviews that are out there on the web, there are lots of phrases that come up, uh, things like indigenous data sovereignty, indigenous AI. And I gather, you know, that it's not just about sort of, you know, indigenous folks doing artificial intelligence research or uh, concerning themselves with data sovereignty, but this is about uh, a perspective on these issues, which is peculiar. Um, can you tell me what those types of terms mean to you? What is the indigenous perspective on artificial intelligence? Indigenous data sovereignty is a response to colonization and behaviors of colonial um, behaviors, specifically in research. Um, so my people, my mother's tribe, Cheyenne, and my, my dad's tribe, uh, Lakota, they've been long researched by anthropologists and by linguists and by media and whatnot. I have aunts and uncles who have been consultants on movies that take place in the West because 
my tribes are the stereotypical feather Indian, you know, like when you think of like these old Western movies, that was us. Like literally often that we were in the background as extras because they filmed this stuff in Montana and the Dakotas. And there's always been this anthropological and social interest and romanticization by the West. And when I say the West, I mean, everyone, Spain, um, uh, France, Germans, you know, Lithuanians, Russians, even, you know, uh, the English, there's a whole subgenre of films that took in the mid-century, the 60s and 70s, uh, in the former Soviet bloc about Native Americans. Like they would dress up, put their shoe polish on themselves and run around like Lakota. And that interest in us has unfortunately also resulted in the commoditization of our knowledge systems. And so since colonization started, you know, 1492, we've been subject to the indigenous peoples of North America have been subject to intellectual property theft. Um, so you have this whole host, everyone in the Americas, North and South, has stolen property in museums. So it started with our, you know, our gold, you know, the Mayan gold, Aztec land, and Native American war bonnets are all in the museums in, in Europe. And it also with our land and also our knowledge systems. And one of the things, the consequences though, is that we're having our identity taken from us and we're no longer allowed to practice. And this was all up until the last 30 to 40 years, optimistically, that we were really allowed to be ourselves. And in the meantime, you had anthropologists and linguists taking our identity, take recordings of us, pictures of us, audio from us, and commercializing it and creating a huge subgenre of media based around our identities. And, and so now we're in the situation where a lot of our intellectual property is owned by outsiders, never mind the land loss and never mind the uh, material artifacts like uh, hide scrapers and uh, cultural significant items that exist in museums. We're now also facing this problem with our language data and our, our stories and our heritage. And it's a consequence of Western economic biases. Uh, or it's, not, it's hard to say that Yes, there was very obviously evil people in our history, the, the military that tried to kill us and the doctors who sterilized our women, but there was also this economic pressure to exploit us and commoditize us. And and so this is really in the response. It's been a general movement. I'm not the only one, obviously. You know, I was inspired by intellectual thinkers in New Zealand and the Maori and also my peers, the Lakota peers. When I spoke to you, uh, where we met at a conference uh, at Stanford that was focused on existing law and extended reality, you mentioned the Maori people and the idea that uh, perhaps uh, they're a little further along, as you put it, uh, in their thinking about these issues. Uh, what, what did you mean by that? When I say further along, they just generally are. They've been, and when I asked them, they you know, uh, people who are advocates for language and technology and for in New Zealand, they always, in that Commonwealth, King's English way, get kind of shy, <laughs> but they don't realize how fortunate they've been. And, and so what I mean is that in North America, we, a lot of languages very nearly went 
extinct. And that's actually kind of a rude way to say it. Uh, and indigenous peoples prefer to say go to sleep because some languages have gone to sleep and have been reawakened recently. So we were facing a crisis of not being able to remember our own mother tongue in North America broadly. Uh, and this was in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Uh, there was this catastrophic loss of language, and we were five years away from a lot of communities losing their languages. And this had happened already to the Maori by this point. And they had worked out strategies and cultural behaviors to protect themselves because they were facing the same crisis that we were. And they have these ideas, like for take for instance, this idea of a language nest, you know, creating a safe space where the language is spoken and then immersion camps and education is adopted. And this idea of their language um, uh, reclamation spread into the Pacific Northwest and it got into Hawaii and through Hawaii, through, you know, various language conferences, you know, people meet people. These ideas made it to North America. And so famously in Montana, the Blackfeet taking ideas, the Blackfeet community, language community saw these ideas originating in New Zealand and implemented them. And so it's quite common in language advocacy that you'd hear discussions of how we setting up these different programs, a holistic approach, creating language nests, and quite amazing that they've been on the forefront of this strategy to protect the language because it's also inspired us in North America. Um, and they've also faced earlier than us the same problems of language, their language data being stolen and being commoditized. Like, Because when you think who are the, the biggest badasses of the Pacific, the Maori, right? <laughs> They're, they have a fearsome reputation. They never actually surrendered. Um, a lot of us didn't surrender. And them in particular, you know, they actually very nearly defeated uh, colonization by the British. Um, and they have this fearsome reputation. And that's commoditized, you know, like you see all the media, you know, the tribal tattoos, the surfer culture, it's very originated within Polynesian societies, in particular the, the the Maori, and there's other Polynesian communities that also we also appropriate and exploit. And so, so they've been on the forefront, similar to cultures like the Lakota, and they've had to build institutions to resist that. And for instance, uh, what inspired a lot of my AI research were Maori data scientists in a media company called Tahiku. Uh, who decided we're going to build their own AI. We don't want to be beholden to corporation and building this technology. So I understand part of your project has been about language preservation and about thinking about how to uh, preserve and advance culture in uh, new technology, you know, uh, natural language and uh, AI is one, of course, XR, uh, virtual reality, another. And yet this panel I, I saw you on, I, I thought it was fascinating in that it was really kind of asking the question, you know, what's new here um, as we kind of enter this phase of generative AI tools like chat GPT or diffusion models, uh, like the stuff that Stability AI is working on or, you know, other similar types of projects um, as we move into a world where uh, some folks want to, you know, see us engage with information and entertainment in some kind of you know, virtual environment or 3D environment. Um, what are your concerns as we as we kind of move in that direction? Are 
the types of issues you're raising here are likely to be exacerbated in, in these environments, the kind of commoditization of culture? Uh, yeah. And maybe just to step back a little bit, but my goal is to build virtual space in the metaverse or whatever we're calling it and be able to have meaningful educational experiences through XR and through AI and specifically voice AI, being able to walk into a Lakota village and being able to um, speak and adhere to cultural norms in a simulated safe environment. And so I see there's incredible potential with XR technology. And as you said, there's risk. You know, I, I'm embracing artificial intelligence and embracing XR and with new economies and new technology, it's always new risk. And whereas before, like I said, we're concerned about our material culture, you know, like um, spears or you know, arrow heads or traditional beaten techniques being exploited. Similar, we're probably going to face the same phenomena in XR, like material objects that are going to be scanned through photogrammetry or created that are basically ripoffs of Disney's cultures to be exploited. Um, it's happening in NFTs. A few months ago, I discovered there's a Lakota bape. It's and it's not the the big fancy one. It's like there's like a bathing ape <laughs> NFT. It's like a knockoff of the bored ape. <laughs> and they wear like this big Lakota headdress, and it's like the Lakota gorilla. You know, like which is on some. And I mentioned this in within the community uh, NFT. Reddit community and the response is usually just, oh, we're trying to honor you. Um, but that it's the opposite for us because what we're seeing is you're taking the caricature of our culture, parading it around uh, without permission. And it creates a uninclusive environment where the indigenous peoples are not going to be willing to participate in that because you're just, you know, this is a clown basically. And that's going to not allow us really to participate much in the metaverse. And so that's one thing. And the other thing is more, you know, the the, the more sinister side is exploitation, where you're going to start seeing our culture being sold as being representative of our work. Like we actually have federal law restricting commerce of indigenous made, Native American made arts and crafts. I think the Native American Arts and Crafts Act is American Indian Arts and Crafts Act, I believe what's called. And so it's illegal to market material as handmade by Native Americans when it's not actually. And I would see something similar within the metaverse happening where you have people who are infatuated with our culture creating artifacts, sacred artifacts and 3D representation and in there. And as we're approaching into this area, AI, space of AI, and I think like you referred to this panel, and I think on that panel, some of the panelists, and nothing, I'm, I'm a fan of this technology broadly. I'm just outlining the potential risks for indigenous people, just that it's going to be possible, similar to these generative AIs for image, where you can ask the AI, create for me a 3D representation of a Lakota teepee, and AI will generate you a 3D object. We're, we're close. We're, we're probably one or two papers away from, you can just ask an AI to generate arbitrary 3D objects with limited data. I've done this just to, I mean, just to see what it looks like. I've gone to Stable Diffusion to their web playground and just said, you know, show me a Lakota picnic. And, you know, it immediately returns something that looks almost like 
Lakota art. Yeah. And the, the problem is that we are artists, artists in struggle. Like if we, we were trying to, like I have uncles and family in the art space and like my parents take, for example, they do silversmith. And, and so my mom is sort of the design. She comes up with an idea, the traditional design. And my dad implements it in silversmithing. And it's hard work, you know, it takes some hours, you know, it takes some weeks to come up with a new design and implement it and create it. And they know they have to keep doing it because new designs, because within months, weeks, there's going to be a Chinese knockoff. Like there's someone's going to take the idea, you know, cast it, um, which is pretty easy and send it off to a factory, you know, where they'll just pump them out and, you know, completely flood the market with this interesting idea. And it's happened to my dad. It happens to my dad pretty regularly. It happens to all artisans. If you have a product that's simple and, and popular, the fact that Chinese factory is going to be uh, building it down and, and not to pick on Chinese factories, you know, there could be easily a Vietnamese factory, you know, like some uh, a boiler, a boiler room factory out there is pumping out Native American art and trying to pass it off as indigenous art, but it's so pervasive in them. And I, you could see that that's going to happen in the XR space. And I think it's going to be worse with generative AI because you won't, you won't need to do actually any intellectual energy and effort because it does take tooling, takes a factory, takes skill. It's not going to take any of that. But in the, in the metaverse with AI, you can just say, create for me a Lakota hide scraper. And how do you compete as a creator in that space? Because that's how, in theory, the next economy is, is the creator economy. But if AI just completely gets able to stamp it out perfectly, human-like, uh, we have no chance. And the core conceit problem here isn't the fact that the AI exists. It's because they're stealing data to create these AIs. If we had the ability to enforce our intellectual property rights, uh, either through having some sort of legal entity who owned the data or even as artisans being able to stop it, this wouldn't be a problem, actually. Like the, the whole reason why you can have stable diffusion, Dolly, or I think there's the other one, the, they, the many other AIs out there is because they scrape the internet. They've, these AIs have seen Lakota artwork. These AIs have seen Lakota artisanal work in pictures. And, and that's why they can do it. If they don't see it, they can't do it. And so... Um, I'm actually kind of excited about this Getty image lawsuit against uh, these large AIs because it could set precedent to help us uh, indigenous creators to protect it. And so like, what's the solution? And maybe to back up a little bit, there's like, yes, this is a problem. The technology, and what do we do about it? Because it can very, seem very overwhelming. But the simple solution is just allowing us to opt out or even better, allow us to opt in, allow artisans broadly either indigenous or otherwise, be able to opt in and say, you can scan our work and you can create generative art because I'm pretty sure the Dali family, the estate of the artist Dali has an opinion uh, because a lot of his work is still under copyright uh, over this matter. I have uh, seen, of course, the press statement uh, from Getty Images, uh, who is in fact uh, suing Stability AI over alleged uh, copyright violation. And they say that Stability AI, quote, unlawfully copied and processed millions of images protected by copyright, unquote, uh, in order to uh, train its software. You know, 
one of the concepts that was on discussed on the panel that I saw you first on uh, at Stanford uh, was this idea of abundance. You know, the idea that in these virtual environments or with these uh, AI tools that can create uh, approximations of or sort of synthesis of uh, certain aesthetics or objects or create essentially out of you know millions of of, of data points uh, something that is perhaps like something else but is fundamentally uh, a, a new representation that that is a kind of abundance that you know uh, what you've got here is a sort of you know almost I don't know uh, something that really challenges our notion of, of property rights altogether. I found your kind of pushback on that that concept of of abundance in this regard is very interesting because that that thought about abundance. I mean, that's what seems to be underlying the mentality of some of these Silicon Valley uh, founders. You know, you, you hear that word frequently. Yeah, I think when we think of abundance, particularly in the context of the the panel at Stanford um, and my fellow panelists kept bringing up this notion of the Star Trek replicator. You walk over there and you say Earl Grey hot, you know, and it spits out an Earl Grey cup for the uh, cup of hot Earl Grey, uh, or you ask it for lunch, you know, I want a, um, uh, I want a nice traditional tamale, you know, a bean tamale or something, you know, like, actually that's my favorite. Um, that's what I probably would ask for all the time. It's really hard to get a good tamale in Canada <laughs> where I'm in Vancouver. Um, and that's, a really alluring idea. But if you start thinking of that and realistically, how do you actually implement that? You begin to realize there's an underlying foundation of exploitation. And so like the, the this idea is basically you would be in the metaverse and through whatever API or maybe it's a service you have to pay for. Because um, the replicator is not free. It takes electricity. Uh, you know, E equals MC squared. That means that there's a ton of electricity has to be used to generate that cup of tea on the order of magnitude of jillion, billions and billions of uh, watts. Um, now, it, it, but the idea is in the metaverse, trying to translate this idea from the panel is that you could just in the metaverse ask the AI to please create for me a you know, a Barbie doll house uh, with a Ken car, right? And poof, magically the AI generates a unique representation using the data that's trained on of the Barbie house and a Ken car. And when we think about abundance, what is it going to take to do all that? And we kind of been talking about data sovereignty. So the underlying exploitation, we have to be mindful of the underlying exploitation when we're creating these systems. Um, that are seen as beneficial. So for indigenous perspective, what you're doing here is taking indigenous data, scanning it into a system without permission, and then exploiting our intellectual property to generate. So it's not going to stop at Barbie doll houses. It's going to be, you know, create a dolly representation of a Lakota TV, create a headdress uh, as if it was painted by uh, a modern artist, like say the Dilbert cartoonist. Um, and you really think about it to enable that system and to make it effective and cheap, you're going to have to break a lot of never mind copyright issues, trademark issues, and IP, other IP issues. You're exploiting people and their intellectual works without permission to make it cheap or free. Like right now, 
the AI companies, Stable Diffusion and Dolly, they're basically just charging you for electricity to generate. These are commercial products. You go over there, you pay 15 bucks, you pay 10 bucks, whatever, and they give you an X amount of images you can generate. And you're basically just paying for electricity. But And what they're not doing, as Getty is being concerned about, is paying the intellectual property rights. Like, you have our images in there, you're using these to generate. And so kind of maybe to summarize all this up, the issue with AI is that it's not generating new content. It's actually a facade. These AIs are stochastic parrots. And briefly, stochastic is just a mathematical term for uh, a random process with a measure of predictability, the mathematical term. So they're essentially just a statistical parrot. They see data and they're really good at replicating it at will, and it's only able to replicate what it sees. They're not actually able to synthesize new information. They're doing is doing a really good job of seeming like humans to generate, say, new art. And on every pixel that's being generated by these image AIs originates in a previously seen artwork. So you might, uh, you know, what they do is they basically create a, a layer of noise and then construct art, assembling other art pieces they've seen together. And so it's actually not unique. It's a pretend intelligence. It's not, it's just, there's a set pattern that's been baked into the AI and it's just going to reproduce it. And that reproduction is based upon previous data it's seen. You know, the replicator metaphor, which as you say, was kind of much discussed in in the panel, was interesting because I think what it was trying to suggest is, you know, suddenly you've, you've made a great number of things available to people, experiences, you know, cultural experiences, information, emotional interaction, et cetera, uh, available in a way that uh, almost completely reduces the cost out of it. And the kind of notion, I suppose, in some corners of Silicon Valley is that's a good thing, right? We're going to permit humans to uh, mix and match ideas and kind of, you know, cultural uh, artifacts and, you know, uh, all of all of the things that humanity has essentially produced and placed onto the internet. We're going to be able to cut it up and and remake and redo and advance the culture in that way. I mean, part of me might argue that, you know, at what point do we stop kind of remunerating a culture or a set of craftsmen for their work, right? You know, are there ancient cultures that, uh, you know, we can regard as totally in the public domain um, or, or how does that, how does that work in your mind? I mean, cause I, what I kind of hear you saying is maybe two things at once, like you're thinking about your father and the specific craft that he has created, that is his product, right? But there's also something larger here, which is this sort of, you know, cultural practice um, or the aesthetic that's produced by an indigenous culture. Um, and you see that as worthy of protecting as well. Yeah, I think from a high level, no, I agree. That's a great, um, great synthesis, by the way. <laughs> you, you read a lot, I, I imagine. Um, on a broad level, when these AIs, currently these AIs are virtually free, really cheap. You're essentially just paying for electricity. That's the cost uh, associated with these, but that's not true. There's a, the, the, we, we have this abundance of art all of a sudden. Uh, we can create replicas of manga for dead artisans. We can create, you know, new works by Dolly through Dolly, the AI. And 
but when we're only paying for electricity and we're seeing this is that's the, the concept of abundance right now like this is so cheap we've never been able to create such elevated works uh, that's the abundance that we see but there's no free lunch that great deal of energy and effort went into the construction of this art a great deal of energy and effort went into digitizing these art it's not trivial to take an image i know because i ha- i help artist friends try to get their can't work on canvas into a digital form so they can create lithography you know print it it's, it's difficult work taking art and digitizing it and even if you didn't create it and so what these AIs aren't doing are remunerating all the energy and effort that went into this creating the original art in the first place and without that original art the AI can't create anything if it removed all the Getty images and removed all the artwork by Dali it would not be able to recreate Dali like art and same thing with indigenous if we removed all the data from Lakota art from these AIs they would not be able to create it and so that in my mind says that means there's a dependency upon the intellectual property right of that content and we're not remunerating because yes the AI is creating a, a stochastic parrot version of art but without the underlying energy and effort that went into the to the original data uh, it could not do it at all and so i in a, in a better world or a better scenario which i hope is what's going on on the horizon is where artists are remunerated for their inclusion in these generative arts otherwise it would be you know ip theft and i don't think we're going to stop it because like stable diffusion open sources their ai models and i think the cats are out of the back the technology the strategy has been is too easily replicable but we are going to exist in a metaverse and a commercial system that must adhere to modern copyright policy and so there would always be the fringe you know like there's you can still go to this you know the back alleys of new york i was there recently and buy a cd or dvd you know of beyonce's you know or buy you know the knockoff it's it, it's always going to be there in the fringes i don't think there's anything to stop that 100 percent yeah we can't stop it yeah but i think we could at least mitigate this by having a policy frameworks that remunerate the art because it does take energy and effort it's a lie to say that it only costs electricity to generate the art that's a lie these stable diffusion could not do this if they didn't have if they couldn't have the ability to scan the intellectual property of the internet and that is worth something can you imagine using these technologies in a way that perhaps some fractional you know part of whatever profit that stability uh, ai gets or or open ai gets from a particular work goes towards the individuals uh, whose copyrighted works are perhaps included in that data set I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but I don't know if it's even practical. How would they ever be able to kind of figure that out on some level? Actually, you can in AI. So like what I'm thinking is I think you can, like I think the model already exists somewhat like in say streaming from Netflix, you know, like you pay your, you know, nine or $10. Now it's like 15 or whatever it is. 
and you know they can track you know how your uh, uh what you stream exactly you know and then the artists get remunerated uh residuals i think is what it's called um and in ai i think it's easy you can just say create lakota art of a uh, sphere right and so if there's some sort of entity you know there's actually a kind of a kink in this problem though but let's just make it easier dolly <laughs> or disney mickey mouse created mickey mouse row in the boat with a corgi right right off the bat disney you can say they want mickey mouse so obviously disney needs to get a cut and so the user pays some licensing fee or some uh, convenience fee to the ai and then you can give residuals to uh, disney uh, furthermore ai actually is it actually anonymous? It's entirely possible to reverse engineer the original data used to create AI. And this is actually a privacy problem. Like it's been shown that you can reverse engineer personally identifying information from AI models into you can actually rederive the original data used to train that model. And so it actually would be entirely feasible to audit these models and and Disney can say, hey, you in your model, you might block Mickey Mouse from being the prompt to generate new art, but we can audit your model and see that you have uh, our artwork in there, our copyrighted, our trademark, whatever, um, kind of intellectual property rights in part of your model. So it's no, it's actually feasible. I don't think we're necessarily in the new worlds. Like I still think it's still tractable until modern AI figures out a way to completely anonymize training data. It's totally doable right now to keep track. And perhaps, uh, you know, some of those other technologies, you know, like the the NFTs or or maybe blockchain applications, you know, could potentially serve as a solution there. But I guess you're talking about more electricity. Yes. Well, I mean, and it's another thing too. Like, yes, if you only pay electricity, well, we have global warming. You know, electricity has a problem there, problematic. But to the point of NFTs, I'd just say no comment. I'm not a huge fan of NFTs, but <laughs> don't want to turn off your audience. I don't think you'd have to be so concerned about that. Um, this is a, a generally uh, skeptical <laughs> environment for, for for some of these things. So, um, do you have conversations with policymakers, or have policymakers shown an interest in uh, in your ideas in this regard? Um, you know, either in the U.S. or in in Canada. I do not actually. I do have a a short circuit, though. My wife actually is on policy, AI policy, and XR policy for Canada. She's the famous one, actually. My wife, Caroline Ruddenwolf, she, she is on panels uh, around you know future technology and how it affects Indigenous peoples. But I am not. I'm talking to cool people like you. <laughs> That's the extent of it. <laughs> And tell me a little bit. I know that you're early in your uh, in your in pursuing your doctorate, or at least I understand that to be the case. Is this the sort of uh, will you pursue these types of questions in your doctorate uh, alongside uh, work on computer science? Do you have a kind of research agenda in mind yet, or is it a little too early? We've been talking about the negatives of AI, and I really think that's such a minor issue, like with proper policy and proper ethical behavior. It, not an issue. These aren't technical problems. These are just social problems uh, that we, and of course, practically intractable in the United States. <laughs> but um, 
So I think there, what I want to do is use my research as a model for future research and particularly ethical research regards to indigenous peoples. And so, for example, when that, what I'm working on right now is building automatic speech recognition for indigenous languages. And one of the key problems we have is that we just don't have enough data. Uh, no tribe has enough data to build ASR on their own with a handful of exceptions. Uh, Maori, notably, uh, and Nectuktuk, um, Cherokee, and probably some Iroquoian languages or, or Algonquin languages have enough data to build their own automatic speech recognizers. That is, you know, being able to say a word turns into an MP3 and then converts it to text. It's currently an unsolved problem in North America for languages of North America. Uh, there, there's not been any fundamental breakthroughs in science to uh, enable it. Is certainly not broadly. And so my goal is to generally make it enabled for um, North American, Native Americans and First Nations in Canada. And I also want to do it ethically. Like I, I keep talking about remuneration. I believe the data that I'm using to accomplish my scientific goals is fundamentally not mine. I believe that it is entirely reasonable for the communities I'm working with to ask me to pay them to use their data. They're not because they also have a similar vision as I do. But we do make sure that when we work with uh, corporations, nonprofits, or in, in this case, McGill University, really making sure that the community retains full ownership and full ability to veto usage of the data. And I think that's the model I want to approach. And it makes me feel tired, but I'm probably one day going to run a nonprofit. It's some sort of data co-op because as we're assembling, like I said, at the top of this discussion is that we don't have enough data. So what do you do? If you take related languages, for like we're working with the Wakasan languages, language community, not one of them has enough data. But if you there, if you take related languages, and there's a whole community in the Northwest and Vancouver Island and, and Washington State, and uh, if you combine their data, phonetic data and morphological data, they're close enough that it helps us deal with this data problem. And as we're collecting communities and integrating the data and the AI, we're, we're creating a risk because we, we have a lot of data and I foresee a need that we need some sort of neutral entity where I am simply a client in this model, where I license the data to accomplish my scientific goals. And I can see that other researchers also need that. And this would be beneficial for science because they it's difficult to get clean indigenous data. There's a reason why this, this is an unsolved problem because we have a data problem. And number two, we also need a way for communities to safely get in get into relationship with researchers that can be beneficial towards both uh, in a safe way. So the community will always have veto power. Um, and how do you do that? I think it's going to be a data co-op where you have a third party entity that acts as the copyright enforcer and any profits and benefits go to the community minus some overhead, of course. Um, and so that's what I see going on in the future. And, and how my research can contribute to that vision. And I'm not the only one. This is not a unique idea. This idea of having a, a data co-op is something that is coming out of library science and, of course, elements within AI, because uh, we do have this data ownership issue. Like it's, It is a concern that AI can 
scanned a lot of data. Uh, how do we band together to make sure that we're, data owners, uh, copyright owners are being able to enforce their rights cohesively? So some of the applications that you can imagine from the data sets, the language data sets that you create and the, I suppose, ability to do uh, speech recognition, this is not just preservation. It's also for applications of allowing people to engage with machines and with one another in their language. Yeah, I think the, the, the initial goal, fundamental goal is create an AI API or an SDK that you could use in the metaverse and live in within a language playground. You know, like what if you're able to, within an appropriately licensed, safe environment, say, take me to a Lakota village and teach me how to speak to a grandma and AI can generate a ethically generate properly licensed Lakota village 3D space and generate an avatar for you in which to communicate. And that's what I foresee. And being able to do all of that interaction within Lakota or Cheyenne or, you know, in, uh, Makar, Kwakwala, the languages I'm working with, and just enable this technology broadly and do it in a way that's safe for everyone involved is my ultimate vision here. So perhaps a alternative vision of abundance. Yeah, I, I think we're going to unfortunately end up here anyways. Like we're going to have like, Again, not picking on Disney, uh, Disneyland and Metaspace, where you go in there and say, I want to talk to Goofy, who's wearing the cowboy hat, you know, and it's going to generate. <laughs> and you're going to have to pay some fee to get in, you know, like I, I see it's going to happen for copyright force, uh, entities who are able to enforce their IP. But, you know, well, how do we do that for smaller communities like the indigenous? Michael, it's been great talking to you. I uh, hope to catch up with you perhaps a little further into this PhD and, and see where you've taken it. Awesome. And thank you for the opportunity. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to Britton Heller. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.